0: You could even argue well not too much but you've sacrificed quite a bit then it makes sense to make that decision you know as early on as possible whether it's feasible and that's why i was interested right so how can we help people make those decisions earlier if we can you know successfully predict success and say well this is not for you this is for you and i believe that there's a time and a place for everyone so it shouldn't be exclusive but it does mean helping people get on the right path
1: And examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book plan B, how to scale your technology business faster, and achieve plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Wouter Vanderberg. der Wouter, in his early late teens and early adult life, believed that he would be a professional football player. That's what he had aimed for. He was in the development squad. That's what he spent every waking moment of his life focused on. Then in his early 20s, He got a tap on the shoulder and told he'd been cut from the squad, not because of his technical skills, but because of his mindset. And so his life journey completely changed. In fact, he hasn't played football since, but he went off and did a degree. And then he did a master's degree in business economics and another in neuroscience. And then he did a PhD. And during his PhD and postdoc, he was actively bridging the fields of behavioral economics, marketing, sales, neuroscience endocrinology, and psychiatry. And what he's tried to do is he's tried to come up with or has come up with a methodology uh, which has come together in his business brain compass and a technology or a system that he calls the Team Dynamics Framework. And so his big thing is he thinks there's a difference between being good enough and excelling. And in his research, he's been able to find the top performers I often say five to 10 times. He's been able to find the top performers perform up to 16 times better than than average. And actually that's not because they're better. This goes back to his own experience as a footballer. It wasn't that he didn't have the technical skills. Like I don't have the technical skills. So he's already in the top 1%. But maybe just his mindset, the way his brain was wired, didn't allow him to unlock his fun potential. And having been cut from the academy, this is really his journey. It's to find out what he could have known 10s or 20 years ago that would have put him in a position that he could have unlocked his full potential. And so to unlock this potential, to achieve this full potential, we need to learn to unleash primal talents of our DNA. The factory settings form the foundation on which our brain has developed. Later life experiences then ensure that these neural networks in our brain can optimally deal with opportunities and challenges. If you get this right, you can be happier, you can be better balanced, you can build on your own strengths, and you can tap into this inexhaustible power of billions of brain cells, and you can lean on both your nurture and your nature to maximize your potential. And so the Brain Compass Team Dynamics Framework that Wouter has developed rests on both a, a survey, who are you and where do you show up in the world, but also a DNA test to see what your genetic makeup is. Absolutely fascinating conversation with Wouter looking at how do we unlock our potential to be 16 at times better than average i loved it i'm sure you'll enjoy it
0: my name is uh, wouter van den berg i'm a neuroeconomist, which basically means i try to understand uh, how the brain works and how that translates uh, to uh, high performance uh, in organizations for leaders but also for individual professionals
1: how did you end up? I mean, you weren't at school. The careers officer didn't say, "Wow, there's this thing you could be a neuroeconomist. So how did you, how did you end up here?
0: That's a, that's a very interesting question. I think it, it, it would need, you know, me to take you guys back a little bit uh, in my life. I didn't obviously start out as a neuroeconomist. I tried to be a professional soccer player for the first 18 or 21 years of my life. Uh, so I've spent time in uh, some Dutch national uh, team. I've uh, spent time at, uh, a youth academy of a professional soccer club here in Rotterdam, where I'm basically uh, living, uh, in the Netherlands, by the way. Uh, so there was a time in my life where I expected to end up, I don't know, somewhere at AC Milan or uh, some other, you know, fancy uh, football club. And to be honest, there was a time in my life where that was actually reasonable, right? So I think many people dream about that stuff, and I was relatively close. But then at the age of 2021, 20, I had to go to the manager and basically he said, Wouter, I don't know what it is, but uh, either you're not talented enough or you're not able to activate your talent. But basically, you know, the conclusion would be the same. And now we're going to let you uh, go and maybe it's time for you to focus on uh, some other career, which they they sort of, you know, for me was easy because I I jumped over the street from stadium into the campus of the university where I had to deal with that question for a couple of years. And I I truly believe that, you know, the quest that uh, I'm on today, which is trying to help people unlock their potential is basically the quest. For myself right then i'm trying to find out where did i go wrong what did i leave on the table and and how could i have done things differently and then i started to study economics when you talk about you know making conscious decisions we'll probably talk a little bit about that later today as well but i'm the fifth generation who did so in rotterdam so it was just you know it was a standard train that 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 came by and i started on my phd after my uh, master's degree where You know, economists basically try to find out why people do what they do and why they make certain decisions. And traditionally, we see humans as uh, utility-maximizing actors that make rational decisions obviously that's not so true. And then economists tried to borrow some, some psychology, which is also only you know, limiting additional explanation. And then the neuro sort of came up, which is it's around 2005 and five and six, where we tried to leverage the latest uh, neuroscientific insights on how the brain works into the business field of business. And that's where I sort of picked on uh, this journey.
1: Is it different in the Netherlands than it is in the UK? But I would say in the UK, it's a vanishingly small amount. Num- like the chances of... The chances of going on to get a PhD seem less likely than playing for AC Milan.
0: Yeah, I think it's 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 just a little bit of the ambidexterity that I carry within myself, where I where you know there's there's two things that I loved a lot, and where apparently I was able to get quite far with. Uh, if you look at it from a sort of a performance level,
1: were your parents disappointed that you had? you were trying to become a professional footballer
0: i think i can honestly say no i think i've got very supportive parents in the sense that they've always you know stimulated me to try and 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 look in that direction of life where i want to look at that moment they also put some urgency in me so if you then start looking then maybe you should also follow up so it's not necessarily i think on the decision or to what extent you can actually see that as a conscious decision to try and pursue that career they were disappointed. On the other hand, I think I'm a father of a child of three and a half, so I'm sort of getting in that space now, very, very slowly. That you know, you want your child to be happy, you want your child to be successful, and I think they also shared a lot of my pain. And you know, I personally couldn't watch match of the day, so to say, for two, two and a half years after I got sort of uh, fired from uh, the academy, uh, basically because I was seeing these guys on the screen that I thought that I was better because I actually played those guys, which obviously wasn't true.
1: Well, or, or your, your view of the world was different to the head coach.
0: Well, that's, in my case, actually, that's true, right? So he just didn't quite understand. No, that's, that's I think, you know, talent always, true talent always sort of ends at the top. On the other hand, you know, activating that talent is, is, is sort of the part of the same equation. But they did share the pain of, of failing, I think.
1: You were as talented as the people who made it, but they had a mindset that you didn't have?
0: Yeah, I think that you know that that sort of would be my summary in the sense that if you look from let's say biological, hard skill kind of if we translate that to business world, I think you know I, I I would have been fast enough, I was strong enough, my timing was good enough. I think I you know could kick a ball straight ahead for the amount of meters that it needed to go straight ahead. I think there's a big gap between being good enough and being excellent. And for a long time, you know, I was sort of sailing along in the academy on the things that I was good enough at and I I didn't realize on time that I needed to make the step to excellence so I needed to sort of find out what, what were the things not necessarily that I was lacking but the things that I should boost even further to get to a pro level which basically means you know being better than everybody else specifically in my club because it wasn't a very big or rich club so there in the end literally there was only one contract so it's a big pyramid funnel basically where In the end, if you realize that, you know, being top three every year sounds like, you know, that I'm on my way. But in the end, you know, if there's only one seat uh, at the table, even top three is quite far away from where you need to be. And do you still play football? No, literally. uh, I tried for one year, couldn't do it. So I watch it. I'm a big fan, but I haven't been on the pitch maybe even for 12 or 15 years now, I think.
1: And so as you started your university career and you started digging into these things that you wish you'd known before, what did you uncover?
0: Yeah, so it's, it's interesting because my PhD was actually funded by a grant that was supposed to, you know, we were supposed to spend it on research trying to predict success, right? And that's also where I sort of obviously leaned in, leaned in because I thought, okay, so if I would have been able to make an informed decision on whether or not, you know, it was feasible that I would make it to that, let's say, top 1%. I could have either, you know, saved myself a lot of time. And, you know, I, 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 I think I sacrificed quite a bit. You know, there's nothing, I'm not complaining and it was worth a lot. But at the same time, I spent quite a bit of my youth trying to be, you know, healthy, fit, on time, you know, skipping summer holidays, uh, skipping family gatherings, etc., cetera, and, and spending time with friends to try and, and be the best footballer that I could be. If there's some way that you can, you know, upfront, help people sort of get a, get a good idea on whether that makes sense. And, you know, it's, it's, it might be a bit in contrast to what many, many other people in my field are saying, but obviously you should enjoy the journey, you know, but, but not making it until the finish line or at least not winning the match, that's, that's very, very painful, right? So there's, if you are, you are opening up your heart in, in sort of a situation where you dream and aspire something and, and that doesn't work out and, and you've actually sacrificed you could even argue, well, not too much, but you, you've sacrificed quite a bit. Then it makes sense to make that decision you know, as early on as possible, whether it's feasible. And that's why I was interested, right? So how can we help people make those decisions earlier if we can you know, successfully predict success and say, well, this is not for you, this is for you. And I believe that there's a time and a place for everyone, so it shouldn't be exclusive, but it does mean helping people get on the right path and getting them into the right positions at the right time in their, let's say, career.
1: You've been lucky to go from professional footballer to phd but if you take five years off somebody they don't get it back it's there are lots of things you can't start when you're in your early 20s you know that if you hadn't if you hadn't started earlier so telling people earlier not wasting their
0: time finding the thing that they can be excellent at
1: could be very helpful
0: yeah and 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 I think many people sort of, you know, then jump in, enjoy the journey. And maybe, you know, my sort of ambition would be to set people on the right path and have helped them enjoy the journey, right? It's not necessarily mutually exclusive. Well, or, or
1: if somebody says you're not going to make it, you, at least you go in with your eyes wide open.
0: No, that's also true. <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean, I, you know, somebody said to me that I'd gone, for a, I'd gone for a liquid biopsy, which screens for takes a blood draw and screens for 70 types of cancer. And somebody said to me, why would you want to know? Yeah. And so I draw in the parallel, I guess there are some people where even if you could tell them whether they would make it or not, some people would deliberately choose not to know. You know, I can see the mindset would be similar in this, where you say to people, I can screen you to see whether you're going to make it or not. And some people would say, I don't want to know. And that's fine.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's very true. And to be honest, I would want to know. I also, you know, I, I see this a lot in the coaching that I currently do, where I sometimes ask people, you know, if you would rate yourself on, you know, how, to what extent have you unlocked your full potential? And then people would you know, rate themselves, let's say at eight or eight and a half. And then let, and then I always ask them to think about, so, but what if you're wrong, right? When it's only a three, would you want to know? Or are you happy thinking it's an eight and a half?
1: Most of the world think they're an eight and a half when it is only a three. Because they might be disappointed with their lives if they knew it was, if they even crossed their mind it was a three.
0: No, and I completely agree. And I think that's why, you know, so many people settle in, you know, in, in being happy with, with that particular level. And, and some people, you know, are anxious or afraid to try and ask themselves the question, could there be more? Willie, I had somebody
1: on the, other, the, on the podcast recently that runs the uh, Modern Elders Academy in California. And he said, look, the unhappiness in men dips at age 47. Because I think actually there's something there where people get sort of into middle age and they go, I thought I was an eight and a half, actually. And they look around at everybody else and they go, actually, I, I come to the conclusion that maybe I was a three. And, and it's too late to do anything about it. And that's a bit disappointing or demoralizing.
0: Well, and maybe this is sort of where I got stuck, right? Where, what do you need to come to that conclusion? I think you basically, what you need is failure, right? You need to understand that, that some doors close and you won't be open, able to open them back up again. That doesn't necessarily mean there aren't other doors to explore. And I think that sort of drives my self-expansion and ambition and aspirations to do what I'm currently doing, right? To try and find other doors that I, I, I can try and unlock and open up. So when you were
1: doing your PhD, did you find things that would help you predict success?
0: No, and and bottom line, we, and but we could spend an entire podcast only about this question, but I think my bottom line summary is that predicting success is very complicated. I think there are many people and assessments and everything else you know that claim that they can and i always invite people to send me the data because i think predictive validity of you know success measurements don't go you know for more complicated roles or situations obviously don't go up higher than 20 25 maybe 30%.
1: So does that mean if i interview somebody for a job i may as well just toss a coin?
0: Well, it means that you can make a little bit of a better informed decision, but somewhere you come to the question on whether or not that 30% is enough to take away somebody's dream. And I think that's where, the, right? So you could, from an N is many perspective, it makes sense to use that, that kind of you know, mindset. But on the individual level, if you're you know, stepping into the shoes of the person you're interviewing, the N is not many, right? How often do people interview or go for their dream job? So there's a sort of a difference, you could say, or an opposing frame within which we need to ask ourselves that question. If I'm hiring a lot of people, then it makes sense to even add a little bit of prediction. But if I'm talking about myself and my beliefs of what I can accomplish and my dreams and my ambitions, who's going to tell you with 30% certainty that this might yes or no work out? So coming back to your example of, you know, a test for cancer, right? It makes sense to know, but does it make sense to know with 30% uh, probability? I mean, that, that, there things already start to get blurry.
1: Yeah, the doctor said uh, there'll be a 5%, uh, 1% c- chance that you've got cancer that we don't pick up. And there's a 5% chance that we think you've got cancer and it turns out you don't.
0: Yeah, so this is the, the type 1 or the type 2 error, the false positive and the, and the, and the false negatives. And I think that, you know, that that you have to choose for yourself sort of your personal perspective, but at least I, based on the data that we saw very early on in my PhD, which was basically a lack of serious predictive ability of all those models. We basically, you know, changed our, our approach a little bit and not, you know, focus on success factors that have a sort of finite or definitive effect on success, but try to find out which variables sort of contribute in a sense that you can modify or adapt your life to either leverage them or overcome those uh, problems. So it it steps away from a linear causal model from if you have A, automatically it will lead to B, success, towards, okay, so if this is the configuration of you, then what do you need to do to get as far ahead as possible? And I think, you know, given basically the thing that you're trying to accomplish.
1: And so... Uh, what were some of those things? And is, is that then the work that you've carried on into your coaching career?
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely, so from a, you know, a soccer perspective, maybe it makes sense to make a very simple uh, example, which is I was a defender and my height is 174, which is relatively small for a defender. And basically, that raises the question on, you know, either you should move to right wing back because that's then usually what happens, or you just start to jump higher, right? You train and you practice to sort of make up for that 10 centimeter that you're losing. And as long as you make that decision consciously, you know, then it becomes a decision that you're starting to manage and you're starting to influence your success rather than, you know, at the end of the line look back and say okay so I don't know why but I I, I never won and any header right so it's it's trying to understand the underlying variables that sort of contribute to what we would say your phenotype right the way you look or the way you act rather than just judge people on that outside, picture of success
1: and whether did you come up with sort of some mental models as well as well as those sort of physical attributes that people can work on
0: yeah so so and then obviously now i need to sort of translate this more to the business context of my phd but we definitely found out that and this is i think where neuroscience has has really helped us a lot that you know the brain uses all these mental models to process you know the millions and billions of stimuli, and data points that we need to process on a daily basis. We have a very simplistic way of the world compared to how it actually is life to be able to cope with what life uh, throws at us. And that varies from you know, the sound of the, you know, a car passing by right now, or it could be thought that's lingering in the back of my head right now because something I experienced this morning or something I need to do later today. And basically, we have this you know, mental model or set of rules that we use to you know, navigate life automatically. And I think what, what we found is that there are several limiting beliefs about who you are, how the world functions, which play a significant role and have a significant impact in the way that you're able to activate your talent. And it's almost as if you start to live the story that you've been told by, right? So obviously there's a, there's a nature component. So we, we, we are born with 50% of the DNA from both of our parents. And I always like to call that your factory default settings, which is just like your mobile phone, right? Nobody thought about you know, the ringtone that's on there. Somebody just decided that, I don't know, in uh, California or somewhere in Asia. And if you, you know, don't think about it, you never change it. And you, maybe you put it on silent. And that's a setting that if you understand, you know, that that's just a setting, that's already a very liberating thought on, you know, the, the idea of authenticity, right? Because it's, it's just a gift from your parents. It's not necessarily the best setting that there is. It's just a combination of the settings that they were able to provide to you by chance to be honest, right? It's, it's, it's a very stochastic uh, mechanism by which we come into existence. And then for the rest of your life, you start to sort of experience stuff which either builds on that factory default setting and, and starting to sort of you know, build on the idea that this is the best ringtone ever, which it isn't. It's just the first ringtone. Or somebody starts telling you that this is a ringtone that you should never listen to again, right? And then that, that sort of forms the new you or the new reality. And I think this is where my work has been trying to contribute most and where it's been inspiring most. It's, it's, it's not about, you know, being right about that story. It's about, you know, finding a story that works for you, given your specific goals and aspirations in life.
1: How do people spot those beliefs that are holding them back?
0: It's a very good question. Because
1: those beliefs are really hard. I mean, you know, you talk to somebody and, you know, there's been a few things in the UK, sort of Scottish independence, vote, Brexit, covid And as each of those things are sort of washed over me, you know, there are people who I think are like me. And then you get into a conversation on the back of one event and you realize that somebody believes something diametrically opposite to you. And you think, huh, well, we both can't be right. And beforehand, I would have said, you know, we were, you know, that we had a lot in common. Now, here's a thing that is now jumps out at me and seems to be really strange. I wonder why you believe that. But of course, it's hard to get into conversation about belief.
0: Yeah, and I think that, you know, that's why I think it's so liberating to start to think about it as a sort of an accumulated wisdom, not as the truth, right? So it makes sense that people believe the things they do, because it's quite literally the combination of, you know, everything they've been pre-programmed with, combined with their nurture, the things that they've experienced. So in a sense, you know, you are the product of, of your nature times nurture interaction. And it's also, that's one. Two, it makes a lot of sense to really hold strongly those ideas because you have to live by them every day. That's two. And most people get to those two, you know, steps. But the third would be they are not necessarily true. So I don't know, actually, the English saying, maybe you can help me out. It's like, you know, hold ideas strongly, but be flexible in how you uh, reshape or redefine those. And and I think you have to to be able to go all in on how you think the world works, but at the same time, be open and, and curious to find out if there's something missing in your current model that helps you understand or explain at least what's happening so that you can use that information to further expand yourself, which is, you know, it's. It's another fight I often get, you know, around the concept of authenticity, where people are sort of minimizing themselves into a one-dimensional, stable human being. And, you know, let's say leaders who are saying, you know, this is my type of leadership or this is, you know, the thing that I aspire to because X, Y, and Z. It creates followership if you do that, you know, with conviction. But it also creates bankruptcy if you don't update soon enough, right? So there's there's this this ambidexterity that we need from people in being to lean on, you know, on the one hand on those talents or those those belief systems, on the other hand being open into self expansion and and creativity and curiosity to find out and and add more to what we know right now.
1: Do you have an example of a belief in business, something that? you know, you could share where somebody you've worked with, there's something that was a self limiting belief that you've been able to help somebody identify that then changing how they perceive the truth of that's made a difference to them.
0: Yeah. Let me start with a business example. And maybe, you know, obviously I've experienced experienced many of my, my own, you know, and I still on a daily basis, find out, you know, that things I thought were true. And I think, you know, I used to think that I was a pretty smart guy, but now You know, even many of my assumptions, and I say even, you know, between uh, quotation marks, are, you know, they turn out completely wrong. And this is why I love teamwork so much, because it allows you to uh, leverage the diversity of thinking rather than uh, try to uh, all create this one dimensional uh, force. But I had this entrepreneur who basically built up a consultancy firm of 50 people, young consultants. And he came to us and he said, basically, Wouter, I'm going to sell the company because I don't like people. And then I thought, well, that's a big sentence, right? I don't like people. I don't know if that's, if that's really what you mean, but it, you know, it, it, it's a big belief. And indeed, if that's true, then you don't have any other option than to sell the company because basically you have to work together with all these specifically creative and young consultants. And then we started talking and then basically he said, yeah, I like to go, you know, to the, the Friday uh, night drinks. I like to go on skiing holiday with them. I like the design sessions that I do with them when we work for customers. And then I said, well, so these are all social engagements that you have with them. And it seems like you're enjoying them a lot. And then we continue talking. And basically, he said, yeah, you know, but what I find really, really problematic and annoying and in, in a sense, even hurtful is that during COVID, the, this company had, had, had quite a tough time. Yeah. So he, as an entrepreneur, had to sort of bring back financial uh, resources from his private wealth into the company to save the company, or at least to keep it going. Which was, I don't know if you also, you know, work with, you know, that level of of, of entrepreneurs where that really means a discussion at home, you know, with your partner, right? Because basically, it, it 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 asks yourself to to re to put everything you have back on the line.
1: Oh yeah. Look, we've i I've, I've got I, I've got I've spoken to clients and their wives where. The entrepreneurs remortgage the house, or you know, they're in rented accommodation because all of their capital is in the business. And sometimes the wife would like them to own a house rather than rent a house. So these are all these are all difficult
0: conversations. Exactly. Yeah. And this person was on the safe side and 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 relatively wealthy, but now he needed to sort of you know you could even say you know drop one level in the security at home and uh, and and bring that money back into the company. And then he said, and basically when I did that. Some of my consultants still ha- had the audacity to ask me for a raise. And we everybody knew that the company was, you know, was it was tough paying the bills, it was tough paying the salaries, and, and that I put my private money back into the company. And then he felt so overstretched and he felt so sort of, you know, over-asked in a sense, that he basically generalized that into the idea that he didn't like people. Yeah. Where you could argue that it's not the people; it's just you know somebody overstepping your boundaries. Or if you go deeper, you could even you know sort of be more specific about what it is that that you now feel betrayed on, or which value that you feel attacked uh, upon. And that basically means that this belief I don't like people has now been reshaped into you know I-, I have an issue with people overstepping my boundaries, especially in a situation where I've given them everything I've got. And that's uh, much easier to navigate as an entrepreneur. In this case, we added an HR role into his company where basically he didn't have to have those conversations themselves and himself anymore. So he could now go back being the creative design session leader with all his consultants, which actually made the company successful in the first place. And I think that's where, you know, the things get tricky, right? We use that belief system and we sort of, we generalize that belief system in thinking, which is sort of number one error is that, you know, people think and know the same as you do, which obviously is... Uh, very often not the case. So if you start to project your belief system onto the behavior of other people, then things get really tricky really fast.
1: It's those different sets of expectations. He probably never had the conversation with the employees who came asking for a pay rise. He just sort of internalized it and hated them for it.
0: Yeah. I mean, and how often do you then put somebody else in the position where there is no time to make up, right? It It's it sort of, how do you say, jeopardizes the entire relationship. It poisons the relationship. And then in the end, it's an unsolvable, you know, uh, carve out of a business unit or a founder team breaking up. And and the idea is that this all originates in the first three years of your life, where basically as a child, you're supposed to understand that, that there's this dynamic between you and in the child situation, the caregiver. And this is based on the attachment theory for those who are interested in reading more about it. And basically, we have to go through a couple of stages as, a, as an individual where, where we have to understand that, you know, I am a human with internal desires or stakes or aspirations or, you know, even needs. But I also am a human with outer behavior, right? So, and, and those two are not necessarily always in, this, in congruency. So very often, there's something I want to say, but I, I'm not able to say it because I lack the confidence, I lack the wording, I, I, I think this is not the right time. And at the same time, you, as, a, as my, let's say, the, the person I'm trying to work with, also has this duality of an outer game or outer world, behavioral world, versus your inner game, which is basically your thoughts, your beliefs, and, and the things that are important to you. And that means that in a relationship, there's basically four personas that you need to manage. And, and we see that in attachment, but, you know, in the beginning, the, the baby thinks that what I feel is, is eternally true. That's one. And it's everywhere. And that's why, for instance, a baby gets very upset when the parents leave the room, right? Because it doesn't have object permanency yet. It doesn't understand that, that if something that I don't see, that it still exists and can come back. And it is also the reason why it's so upset when it has a full diaper, because it literally thinks the whole world is shit, right? It's everywhere and for always. And slowly we start to understand that, you know, there's this sense of timing, that things that are true now are not true forever. There is this sense of time and space. Things that are true here are not necessarily true everywhere. And this then translates into your empathy system, where basically you now have to understand that the thing that I'm feeling is not necessarily the thing that the other person is feeling automatically. So you have to detach basically yourself and say okay I now realize that my frame my you know the way that I view at the world and the way that I interpret your behavior is not necessarily the way that you have intended it to be and it's not necessarily means anything about what you want to accomplish in this situation.
1: I see that a lot where people are then disappointed in the behavior of other people and yet they never communicated their expectations to the other people so the other people had no way of knowing that they were about to let somebody down or disappoint somebody I see that all the time
0: and i think that you know that that's part one of the solution i think you know some people call that the grace principle right that you try to whenever somebody that's in your usually this this is easier for people that you feel safe with when they're doing something that sort of contradicts your needs you basically assume that they did this out of you know a positive intent Right, and you, you extend grace in the sense that uh, compassion and sympathy. I think that's, that's only the pause button, right? It basically pauses your emotional response to whatever that person is doing. But it doesn't, it, it doesn't mean that you don't need to go to that person or at least don't need to. I mean, you can do whatever you want, but it still helps to then verify because being overly gracious is, is one of, let's say, the missed, underdeveloped attachment styles in the sense that, that you didn't complete the full cycle, which is then you know confronting or checking on whether or not maybe this person actually was here to hurt you, right? And just always extending grace is, let's say, the helper syndrome of the leader, right, where they are always making up good stories for why the people are underperforming, and they're too late in making important decisions and having the real conversation.
1: Well, and and I remember reading a piece of work about couples who stayed married for a long time, and the interestingly, the researcher had found that they viewed each other through rose tinted spectacles. So sort of this sort of idea of, you know, lens or frame. And, you know, the husband would say, oh, the wife's an amazing cook and she'd go, I'm not really. And it was just this, there was just, they held each other to a higher higher regard, in a higher regard than those people held themselves. And that that was true of people who'd stayed married for a long time and and wasn't true of, of, you know, which is that sort of, I don't know, you've got some, um, you're gonna cut them some slack They've got some trust points. So how do you find out what attachment style you have?
0: Yeah, so so basically there's an assessment which we've developed, but there's many uh, out there for those who are interested. Is the assessment free online or? No, it's not free online. It's it's actually our business model in the sense that we spend quite some amount of work on it to make it business relevant. But send us a link and we'll put it
1: in the show notes so that people can have a look.
0: And, and basically... You know, if you, if you think about yourself and, and think about, you know, what a child can sort of understand about the world, it goes, it's about two dimensions, right? It's, it's, I'm in this, let's, this originates in zero to three years old. So it's, it's a time of your life where you have virtually no language, right? So it's, it's, you're actually unable to communicate your, your true desires, the things that you really want. You're maybe able to cry or, you know, one of the first words of my son were, was, Kelk, which is, in Dutch, we say milk as milk. So it sort of resonates, but it's, it's not really what you mean anyway. So you are unable to communicate what you really want. You are unable to command other people you know, to come to your, you know, it, it's, it, and you cannot follow them when they go away because you are too young. You cannot go to the supermarket by yourself, so you're very dependent. And the only thing that you want is that people are close because you want them to take care of you. So there's two observations that sort of drive this, this development early in life. And that's one is the availability of the other, right? So to what extent do I experience the availability of my parent or in the theory, they say primary caretaker? And based on that, you either you know, start to be able to trust other people and lean on other people or, or, or you'll say something like, well, I don't think I can trust you to be there when I really need you. So when things need to be done perfectly, I'll better do them myself, right? Uh that's one dimension the availability of the other person which is then connected to your willingness to depend and collaborate depend on and collaborate with others and then there's a second dimension which is okay and if i now want to get as much attention as possible do i just naturally get it without conditions you know what can i laugh or cry whenever i want or do i need to play a trick right do i need to i don't know be quiet or make jokes or smile all the time so are there particular conditions and this sort of gets into this Four by two by two matrix where you have you know high availability, low availability and high conditionality on yourself versus low conditionality on yourself, which then puts you into one of four quadrants. We could put up a, a small explainer where people can maybe already, depending on you know where they self-judge themselves, sort of plot themselves a little bit, which gives them a nice indication. But also to go back to your earlier question, how do you find this you know which beliefs you are holding and to what extent they Are further away from the truth yes or no i think it's very difficult to do that just by self-evaluation so you need your friends your family mentors coaches or tooling to sort of challenge the hypothesis that you have about yourself
1: where does the dna test come in
0: yeah so if you have a full interest into finding out about you know both your nature and your nurture it, it sort of goes back to where did you start right so so some of those beliefs that you hold ingrained or you know predetermined from the moment you're born. And that's not to say that DNA is your destiny in a sense that you cannot change or update those mental models. But it does mean that that some of the, the beliefs that you are holding are so robust, literally because you've never felt or seen something else. So a, an example would be, there's this genetic marker that, that that teaches us something about how you process a molecule, which we call oxytocin. And oxytocin has been, you know, popularly described as sort of the molecule of love or connection. And it's a neurotransmitter in the brain that that activates the social systems. And it it activates, let's say the warmth that you feel when you connect to others and make meaningful connections. Now, let's say you are born with a, a neural network that is lower in regulation, right? It responds less to social cues. From the moment that you're born, obviously one of the first beliefs that you'll start to have about the world is that it's quite lonely. And that's, that's not necessarily because people are not smiling at you or are not giving you the social attention. It's just that you are processing that information as uh, less significant or l- the volume is turned down. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. And that basically means that, you know, nobody intended it to be like that. It just means that one of the first things that you experienced in your life is that people are not as social as 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 other people would think people are. Because they would have the upregulated version of that uh, genetic marker. And we believe that it's interesting to find out where you started. Again, not because it's your destiny, but but it allows you to challenge even the most basic assumptions that you have about yourself and how the world works as just a setting. Uh, And that opens up the whole growth mindset on how now redefine or use that setting uh, to your benefit in a way that it helps you accomplish your goals quicker.
1: Fantastic. I'm definitely going to do that with you.
0: I mean, it's uh, the best thing because people, you know, about questionnaires, they always say, yeah, that that's something that you answer about yourself. You can think about it. But uh, spitting in a tube, that's it. Unless you obviously have a dog and you uh, try to uh, fool us with that. You know.
1: Walter, what? what is it you know now you wish you'd known earlier?
0: Well, I think that all comes back to that, you know, that the things I knew for sure are just assumptions. And it's a, it's a SFD. It's a shitty first draft, right? It's a hypothesis. It's my best guess on how the world works and by... Stepping into a room where there's people that see the world from the opposite perspective that's that's such a revelating experience and it's you know it's so so tempting to step into the rooms where people echo chamber you, your beliefs and as leaders it's it's so easy to find people that follow that and I've been on a journey which i you know i I, I fall back on a daily basis relapse on a daily basis, but to try and and find people around me that show me the opposite side of the spectrum, and they surprise me. And sometimes it works, and sometimes they fail as hard as I thought they would, right? Because that, that perspective isn't that functional. But to see people live the opposite side of your belief with the same level of conviction, I mean, that's an that's enlightening experience, to my opinion, actually.
1: Fantastic. And if people want to pick up any books to read about this, if you've got anything... That you think is great to read, or, or maybe you've got read a book the last time you were on holiday, and you think we should all read that instead?
0: That's a, an old one when I just started my Ph.D. It's an old one from Joseph Adou. It's "The Synaptic self." It's an old one. It's a very simple way of explaining how neurons rewire and, and, and neuroplasticity happens. And I think it's a, it's a great sort of entry point into, you know, growth mindset, redefining your belief systems. But it introduces enough of biology and psychology, but specifically neurobiology and, and neuroscience to, to open, I mean, yourself up into thinking that this is a mechanism, right? Because you need to, at least in my belief system, what helps is I understand the nuts and bolts. And the synaptic self, I think, is a very cool opener that. that. you got any more? Ooh, I do read a lot of scientific articles, which are not so necessarily interesting to read, obviously. Let me get back to that, and maybe we add one or two more in the notes
1: in the show notes. Fantastic. Wouter, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you very much for coming on.
0: Thank you for listening. I
1: hope you enjoyed that as much as I did.